First of all, um, welcome. Thank you for coming, uh, turning out on this uh, blustery night. Uh, welcome especially to Dr. Knapp, who's come all the way from Melbourne. I saw you up there. Up there. All the way from Melbourne for this. That's brilliant. Um, please make sure you've completed the forms in the foyer, but otherwise you won't get your CPD certificate. Um, uh, there are also dishes for charity donations and for your dinner money. You will note that we are slightly tightening up on that this year. Uh, these lectures cost a lot of money to put on, and so does the food. Um, and you would have someone Scottish as a president, so there you go. Uh, we, will be, we will be watching, and there'll be enforcers periodically as well. Uh, I think Mary was enforcing tonight. Yep, okay. We've received apologies from uh, Mr. Armitage, uh, Dr. Banks, Dr. Hobson, Dr. Johnson, Dr. Jelpke, Mr. Lemberger, Dr. Rutter, Dr. Toggill and Professor Walker. Uh, the, meetings, the meeting on the uh, 15th of May, uh, the minutes are on the website. You can also have an electronic copy um, sent to you if you contact the administrator. If we don't get any objections within the next two weeks, I will sign them as uh, an accurate record. Uh, you see behind me, periodically coming up there, uh, all about Chung's charity dinner, as always. It's on the 27th of November this year. Please book early. It's always great, and thank you to uh, Suresh for... It's very odd sitting down here. Suresh for organising it again. Um, that's all I want to say. My charity is the Meningitis Trust. There are some things on the table outside. Please take them and give them to your patients. Um, and please give generously to it. I guess you want me to do my talk now. Right. This is my reward for afterwards. Thanks. Right. Uh, I had to make up the title months and months and months before I decided what I'd put in the lecture. So I thought of the title and then I had to think of something to fit it. Um, who should I choose? What should I talk about? Well, Elsie Ingalls, rejected after offering her services as a surgeon to the British Army on the outbreak of World War I. She went on to found the, women's, the Scottish Women's Hospitals for Foreign Service, which uh, put ten units in theatres of war all over Europe and saved thousands of lives. James Young Simpson, who was born in Bathgate, the son of a baker, who was a professor of midwifery at Edinburgh University, who discovered the anaesthetic effects of chloroform and later used on Queen Victoria. The interesting Robert Liston, born in Eccles Macken, one of the most brilliant surgeons of the early 19th century, who could amputate a leg in 90 seconds, which is almost as fast as Mr. McSweeney. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, um, on occasions, he took his patient's testicles and uh, is the only person recorded as having uh, a 300% mortality from that operation. Um, he took off his assistant's finger and slashed the coat of a bystander who immediately died of fright. The patient also died. That's the 300%. Lord Lister introduced, introduced antisepsis with carbolic acid spray. There's still a, a spray of his on display in the college in Edinburgh. Sir William Ferguson, born in Prestonpans, studied medicine at Edinburgh and became Robert Knox's assistant, receiving bodies for Burke and Hare. Later he moved to London and became the president of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. <laughs> and that serves them right. <laughs> or Arthur Conan Doyle, Born in Edinburgh, studied medicine at Edinburgh University under uh, Joseph Bell, whose extraordinary power of 
clinical deduction was in, in the inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. Or should I talk about Dolly the Sheep? Probably not. I've, where's my dude I've chosen these three things to talk about, and they're all pretty separate, but there are links. Now, there's a secret in here, and if anybody knows it, just keep it to yourself. Don't tell your next door neighbor. I want to do the big reveal, okay? So, we'll start off with James Barry. He was born in London, uh, of very uh, dubious parentage. Speculation, father, Duke of York, Prince Regent, nobody really knows. He lived with his mother and uh, was influenced by three very interesting individuals in his adolescence. One was Francisco de Miranda, an advocate of South American independence and part-time lover of Catherine the Great, although what he did in the rest of his time is open to speculation. He was the owner of the most extensive library in London, and he went to Venezuela in 1810 and was uh, captured by the Spaniards and died four years later. James Barry, R.A., the very uh, famous Irish artist and professor of painting at the Royal Academy, and David Erskine, the Duke of Buchan, who was an art connoisseur and a uh, friend of James Barry, R.A. These three men had a very odd and largely undocumented um, relationship with James Barry influence upon him as an adolescent. There's, it's, it's likely that James Barry R.E. was his uncle, was his, his mother's brother. Uh, but there's no known kinship between uh, the other two and, uh, and James Barry. He could have been as young as 11 when he enrolled in Edinburgh University, and therefore the youngest person ever to enroll in medicine at Edinburgh University. He moved to Edinburgh in 1810 with his aunt, was some Mrs. Bulkley, who left a year later and left him to it in Edinburgh. Um, now, 30 years after the death of Hume, Edinburgh is still the, the Venice of the North, Napoleonic Wars going on, all the doctors were abroad. You could be a doctor if you turned up. He spent two years writing his MD thesis and defended it in Latin. Now in those days, you had to, it was on the hernia of the groin, and you had, to def, you had to explain two aphorisms of Hippocrates, comment on two cases, and answer questions on your thesis, all in Latin. And he graduated in 1812 after two years of study. You turned up, you got your degree. He then moved to London as a pupil dresser for um, Ashley Cooper, six months, passed the exam to be uh, a regimental surgeon, and then passed his army medical in 1813, um, commissioned as a hospital assistant. He was posted to Plymouth. Um, has that gone on too much? No. He then, well, he then embarked on a considerable journey around the world, which I'll just summarise here. He started in Edinburgh, Cape Town, Mauritius, Jamaica, St. Helena, Barbados, Malta, Montreal, and London. But he was initially posted to Plymouth, a very short time before he went to the Cape, where he um, became a personal favourite of um, Sir Charles Somerset, the governor of the Cape at the time. Barry was known to be pretty flamboyant. Uh, he used to ride around the town in a cocked hat and plumed, you know, cocked and plumed hat. Um, he had um, three-inch lifts in his shoes, they say. 
He was a very small person. And um, he was always attended by a, a bevy of large black servants and Psyche, the poodle. He was such a favourite of uh, Sir Charles Somerset because he saved him from typhoid. And he went, um, he became his personal physician, um, but started displaying some fairly combative traits, some fairly unpleasant personality traits, to the point where he actually insulted one of Charles Somerset's lady guests one evening and was challenged to a duel by Josiah Cleote, uh, Sir Charles's ADC, and they fought a duel the next morning with pistols. Both missed. So, in the Cape, personal favourite Sir Charles Somerset, unpleasant person, but did a lot of good through very simple measures, uh, changing the diet of the, of the garrison and um, their sleeping quarters were improved and so on. A lot of very, what we'd call public health measures, I suppose. Um, he took issue with, the, he had a lot to do with prison reform as well, and he took issue with the treatment of one particular prisoner and had a huge battle with the local fiscal, was demoted and, uh, um, dis and, and, and basically then went to Mauritius. One interesting thing which we'll raise later is the placard incident. Uh, the relationship between Sir Charles Somerset and James Barry was noted to be so close people thought there was something going on and wrote all that on a placard and put it up in the town square. Huge fuss about that, but um, the, he seemed to survive it and uh, as he was promoted uh, to medical inspector in 1821. Mauritius, again, another promotion. He's probably about 33 at this point. Continued to be extremely combative, combative and controversial, uh, but it still did a lot of good through simple public health measures for uh, the Mauritian garrison. He left in 1829 to attend Sir Charles Somerset's last illness in London. Um, left London in, in uh, 1831 after the death of Charles Somerset, probably about 36 by this point, and was posted to Jamaica. Still with Psyche the Poodle and John the Servant. Distinguished himself greatly during the slaves' insurrection by treating everyone equally. Uh, promoted, posted as PMO to St. Helena. Recently returned by the... Uh, East India Company, the Crown, 15 years after the death of Napoleon. Interesting place. The legacy of the East India Company was a large number of ladies of negotiable virtue, all riddled with clap, and taking up so much space in the hospital there was nowhere else to treat the soldiers. So he cleared all these strumpets out and uh, made the hospital good again, uh, thereby improving the garrison's health um, uh, again, through a fairly simple measure, uh, and was uh, very popular. All this, of course, required money, and there were certain financial irregularities which are not really very well documented, uh, for which he was court-martialed. The court-martial found that no crime had been committed, but demoted him and sent him to Barbados. The Windward and Leeward Command. A lot of disease, mainly fevers, dysentery, uh, but mostly DTs. Uh, rum was so cheap, everybody spent most of their time hammered. Uh, he had a distinguished career there for several years, um, but contracted yellow fever and was returned to England on sick leave. Recovered, posted to Malta. He was there for about uh, eight years, uh, attending a cholera, cholera outbreak in Corfu at some point. Um, probably 
probably treated troops from the Crimea and very possibly visited Crimea and met Florence Nightingale. His last posting was to Canada, to Montreal. Again, he gave uh, great service in Montreal, changing the troops' living conditions and diet, and again, very simple measures, improving the garrison's health immensely. Spent two winters in, Ca in Canada, but contracted flu in the second winter and was shipped back to a medical board in London, where he was declared unfit and retired, forcibly retired. Bit of a shame, because he was only 20 months away from the end of his posting, and that would have made an enormous difference to his finances in retirement, but he was not allowed to continue. He moved to London and contracted dysentery uh, and died after being attended by Dr. McKinnon, an army surgeon, and he was laid out by a charwoman. Who knows the secret? He was a girl. When the charwoman laid him out, uh, there were striae gravidarum, which the local medical authorities at the time said were indicative of giving birth at a young age. Gigantic embarrassment. The charwoman threatened blackmail. There was an inquiry by the Registrar General, and he was buried without any further ado. Plopped in the ground, that was that. Much fuss. So what were the clues? Very possibly he was a tomboyish, she was a tomboyish girl. And there is documentation suggesting that there was a conspiracy between Francisco de Miranda, James Barry Ari, the artist, and the Earl of Buchan to see if they could send this wee girl to Edinburgh University as a boy to graduate in medicine. At medical school, he always wore a surtout, a top coat, which covered pretty well everything. And the fashion was at that time to wear much less complete clothes, if you like. That sounds rude, doesn't it? But uh, you know what I mean. The army examination, well, he must have had a medical for the army. Or did he? As I said, in those days, you turned up, you could be a doctor. And um, the army examination either didn't take place or was circumvented by a letter from the Earl of Buchan. Because the letter is, is somewhere. When he moved to Cape Town, he was known as the Kapok Doctor. Because his, his uniform always looked stuffed. It was, in fact, his servant's duty to provide him with seven small towels a day so he could augment his uniform. There's a story about Mrs. Fenton and the nurse from Calcutta in the, in the library with the candlestick. Um, Mrs. Fenton, um, there was a nurse who attended... Uh, Barry in uh, the Caribbean uh, when he was uh, she was suffering from uh, yellow fever and um, discovered that she was a woman. The nurse went subsequently to Calcutta on another posting and talked to Mrs. Fenton in Calcutta. It's all very, you have to bear with me on this one. Talked to Mrs. Fenton who recorded the fact in her diary. Nothing was done at the time. It all seems to have been hushed up very, um, very efficiently. He was never examined by a doctor except in a dark room. He was always isolated, didn't have many friends on his postings. She, keeps saying he. Um, but there were lots of clues. Also, when he reached about 70, well, 60, he was obviously dyeing his hair, had never had a beard, and still looked like a sort of prepubertal boy. He was a very small person, lifts in shoes, very slim. So age didn't really affect 
her like it may have if she was a man. Now, this is the other half of the photograph. That's James Barry, and that's John, and that's Psyche, who changed species from time to time, but was always called Psyche. So what happened after he died? Well, a liveried footman turned up at his home, took, the, took away Psyche, and paid off John. Very possibly, the same footman turned up in Jamaica at the house of one Mr. McCrindle and took away a black box. This had been given to McCrindle two years earlier by Barry on a visit. Nobody ever found out what was in the box, but it's speculated that it's either a confession or the ashes of his child, her child. So, surprising surgeon. Uh, not really what you would. That's why I asked you to keep the secret, because a lot of people know about it. So we're going to go on to, yeah, the anatomy murders. You couldn't do Edinburgh without the anatomy murders. It's important to do a few definitions first. Burke and Hare were not resurrectionists. Resurrectionists dug you up. Burke and Hare didn't dig anybody up. Digging somebody up was not a crime. Well, it was a crime. Um, but not digging them up, just getting rid of the body was absolutely fine. As long as you made proper disposal of a body in the 1820s, that was okay. If you dug him up, that was a violation of the sepulchres. That was, that was grave robbing, and that was illegal and a crime. This is a security system for the recently deceased, and you'll see, that, see them all over Edinburgh. They're mort safes. They put these around the graves to prevent people digging them up. Um, the other thing that, um, that happened was um, that your relatives would guard your grave for a week with guns, and they would shoot first and ask questions later. The, the situation with anatomy in the 1820s in Edinburgh was that in order to get a license from the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, you had to have been taught anatomy by an approved provider. Now, at this point, all the doctors were flooding back from the Napoleonic Wars. They, you didn't get anything for your clinical services in those days, and you made your money as a surgeon through private practice and from lecturing, mainly in anatomy. So there was a huge amount of competition in Edinburgh to be an approved provider. Lots of doctors wanted to do it. All that, obviously, had to be supported by BODs for dissection. Now, the lecturers at the time were Robert Knox, of whom we'll hear some more later, who was an anatomist and scientist. James Simon and Robert Liston, who were surgeon anatomists. John and Alexander Lazars, who were anatomist engravers and whose name lives on in a, an optician's company in Edinburgh, a very famous one. There was William Turner, who was a lecturer in surgery, and John and Thomas Aiken, who were lecturers in Materia Medica. The suppliers were civilians. Andrew Lees, John Spouse, James Hewitt, and the very propitiously placed John McQuilkin, who was a porter at the infirmary, and who clearly had access to things that other people didn't. Around the same time, there was the Anatomy Bill, under debate in the 1820s, First draft came out in 1829, shortly after the Burke and Hare affair, about who should be submitted for dissection. It was really to provide a legal framework for who got dissected when they died. Parliament thought the unclaimed hospital deaths, prisoners, and those relying on public funding could be dissected. But then they thought, royalty, public funding, we don't really want them dissected. So that was dropped fairly smartly. The Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh 
thought that traffic people from traffic accidents, those dying in hotels or inns, those without friends, should all be dissected to defer funeral costs. In a typical act of political correctness and compassion, the College, the College of Surgeons said the worthless and those who die without friends should be dissected. Things haven't changed. Now, who were Burke and Hare? Well, Burke was an Irish immigrant fleeing the Depression in Ireland that came to Glasgow, was employed digging the Fourth and Fourth Inclined Canal. He met his wife, Helen McDougall's future wife, Helen McDougall in Falkirk. They moved to Peebles, where he trained as a cobbler, and then he moved to Edinburgh, where he plied his trade as a cobbler. He was probably born in 1807, which makes him 20 or 21 when the whole uh, anatomy murder thing happened. William Hare was also Irish. He was a bagman in Edinburgh. He happened to be lodging at Margaret Logue's boarding house. And when her husband died, he married her, took over the ownership and running of the boarding house. This gorgeous chick, oops, this gorgeous chick here is Mrs. Hare, is Margaret Logue. Um, and continued to run the boarding house. Robert Knox, the other, the other, the other uh, character in this dramatist person, he was born in 1791 studied medicine at Edinburgh and went to Cape as an army surgeon in 1815, probably just missing uh, James Barry. He developed a, uh, an interest in comparative anatomy, mainly uh, the species of humans that he found in, uh, in South Africa. Uh, he returned to, um, to Edinburgh where he became uh, the curator of the um, Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh Museum then he became conservator when John Barclay died and came into an absolute fortune, £150 a year. When John Barclay, um, uh, well, when John Barclay retired, he did that. When John Barclay died, um, he started becoming the most popular science lecturer and medical lecturer in Edinburgh, earning something up to £1,000 a year. Now, Burke and Hare, Burke as a digger on the canal, got £3 for a whole season of work. And the Hare's boarding house brought in seven or eight shillings a night. So a thousand pounds, a lot of money. Uh, unfortunately, because he was, or possibly because he was, he was so well known and so, so incredibly wealthy at that time, he became very unpopular and was a major player in the anatomy wars um, in Edinburgh, this competition to get approved provider status from the college. So that's the, the three main protagonists in this. Now, William Burke happened to take lodging in William's, William Hare's boarding house. Nothing wrong with that. It's a perfectly, perfectly okay place, apparently, of, of that age. Donald the Old Pensioner was the first, the first body. Donald the Old Pensioner was suffering from terrible dropsy and, according to everyone, died of natural causes. They left his body lying in, the, in the, the boarding house for a couple of days. They didn't know what to do with him. And then Burke decided to sell him to the anatomists. So they invited the, uh, the undertaker around who left the coffin. Presumably it was sort of DIY, kind of put the body in the coffin yourself. Kind of thing. They packed the coffin with Tanner's Bark. The house was in Tanner's Close in Edinburgh, which is in the West Port in the grass market. And there was a tannery there next door. So... Uh, they packed the coffin with Tanner's bark to make it heavy and let the undertaker take it away. They hid the body under the bed 
and then uh, when the undertaker was gone, put him in a tea chest and carted him off to Surgeon Square to sell him to Dr. Knox, to Professor Monroe, who was the, the premier sort of dissector of the time. Unfortunately, he was out. So they went next door to Dr. Knox and sold him to him for seven pounds and 10 shillings. Now that was not a crime. They were making proper disposal of the body. They hadn't dug him up. So clearly getting a taste for the, the whole business, uh, the first murder was in February 2000, uh, 1828. Nobody really knows if it was Joseph the Miller or Abigail Simpson. Both were residents in Hare's boarding house, and uh, it's said that Joseph was simply stifled with a feather pillow while, by Burke, who, while Hare sat on his chest to stop him moving. The second was Abigail Simpson. Abigail was invited back to um, the Burke's house where she was burked. This was probably the first use of that technique in the series of murders. It's possible, do you know what burking is? You know burking is? A simultaneous occlusion of the nose and mouth, you know, like that. And somebody sitting on your chest as well. So Burke would do the, the mouth and nose and here would sit on the chest. Burking was an interesting thing. It was probably used in battlefield uh, situations where people with unsurvivable wounds were dispatched mercifully. <laughs> mercifully. Um, but this was the first use of burking in this uh, series of murders. Uh, they were both. Uh, you have to also remember that it had to be it had to be done to people who were not very fit. Most of Edinburgh was young. You couldn't get old in Edinburgh. You died before you got old, probably whiskey poisoning. So you had to be either drunk or very sick to be burked properly or easily. And um, most of the, you see that most of the victims were actually sick or they were, they were compromised in some way. Anyway, Joseph and Abigail were both sold on to Dr. Knox for 10 quid each. Remember, three pounds for the whole season of work, seven or eight shillings a night for your boarding house. 10 pounds, a lot of money. It's said that Hare slept well and Burke drank several bottles of whiskey um, and kept candles burning all night um, because he's, his conscience was bothering him. Dr. Knox had an excuse for not being suspicious. He was getting these fresh bodies all of a sudden. You know, these are fresh bods. But Donald the pensioner was dying of dropsy. The miller was, uh, was dying of some wasting disease. And Abigail Simpson was dying of whiskey, but dead of whiskey poisoning for all anybody knew. Uh, she was extremely intoxicated um, by the time she reached Dr. Knox's hands. Subsequent murders, well, they were mostly known by some name like a native of Cheshire old woman, Effie the Cinder Gatherer. But in April 1828, there was a sort of change in pattern and perhaps the beginnings of suspicion about Birkin Hare. Mary Patterson was a part-time prostitute. It's not documented uh, what she did in the rest of her time. And was much given to drink, so a fairly popular lass in Edinburgh, and possibly quite well known to the medical students. Um, she and her friend Janet Brown went out on the tear one night in Edinburgh, got absolutely drunk and were thrown in the latter-day equivalent of the drunk tank. The next day, um, they were released from police custody, and uh, went to have a, a cup of whiskey. Drunk from a teacup, this was 
recognized breakfast food for ladies of marginal circumstances in the 1800s. And uh, she met um, William Burke. She and Janet went and met William Burke in the, in the whiskey shop. Um, Burke, seeing that she was clearly a good sport, invited her back to his house with Janet and two bottles of whiskey. They drank the whiskey. Janet and Burke went out to get some more. And um, when they came back, they found Mary Patterson on the bed, absolutely smashed out of her brains on whiskey. Janet fled in panic, and Burke burked Mary Patterson, and off to Dr. Knox with her. Now, Dr. Knox thought she was so beautiful that he preserved her in a tank of whiskey, <laughs> which seems to have been more of a preservation strategy than a lifestyle choice, but that's what he did. He put her in a tank of whiskey, where it was likely that very many people uh, recognized her, including the medical students. Nothing happened but there's a certain sniff of suspicion about it. Lots more murders, women murdered by hair, drunk old women, blah, blah, blah. And MacDougall was, in fact, um, Burke's wife's cousin. So they had absolutely no scruples. The real beginnings of suspicion started with Daft Jamie, James Wilson, probably about 22 years old, probably an autistic savant. He was well known for being able to solve calendar problems and calculations extremely quickly and was much in demand for that, a sort of latter-day rain man, if you like. He used to frequent the streets around Surgeon's Hall, up at uh, Nicholson Street, um, uh, wandering around um, the streets in, in the daytime. But he was found one day by Margaret Hare, uh, by uh, Helen McDougall, in the grass market, which is about a mile away, maybe. So well out of his normal territory, he was taken home by McDougall, given a great deal of whiskey, and burped. He was sold to Dr. Knox. It's likely that several medical students and Ferguson, remember Ferguson, recognized Daft Jamie. Uh, it's very likely that Dr. Knox did. And Dr. Knox took the precaution of dissecting him face down, dissecting his feet and his face first, because his feet were deformed. And he took all the recognizable features away by dissecting him face down and very quickly. But it's still possible that he was recognized. The other thing that happened was that Burke gave Jamie's clothes to his brother, Constantine Burke, for his kids. And they were seen walking around on his kids uh, in the local area, and the police were suspicious. The last, the, the, the final straw was Maggie. Maggie Doherty. Maggie was, uh, and this is... Um, Probably the 15th murder. Jamie was the 14th. She's probably the 15th. Um, Maggie came to Edinburgh from Glasgow, another Irish refugee. Uh, she was seeking her son in Edinburgh. Uh, he'd come to Edinburgh looking for work. She met uh, Burke in a whiskey shop. He introduced himself by the name Doherty. Uh, it's obviously untrue. And invited her back to lodge with him as an obvious relative. Uh, Again, you'll have to bear with me on this one. He took Maggie back to his house, Burke's house. Burke's relatives, the Greys, were staying with Burke and his wife, Helen McDougall. Burke told the Greys to get out so there was room for Maggie. They went, I think they went to Hare's house, actually. It was Halloween, and there was a fantastic party. Everybody got absolutely drunk. Burke and Hare started fighting Maggie left for a bit and got drunk. Uh, 
Um, but the next morning, um, the uh, Madge ended up getting burked, hidden under a bed. So the next morning, she was under a bed, dead. And uh, two days later, the Greys came back to pick up their things, found Maggie under the bed. Now, in a scene reminiscent of a Brian Rick's farce, the Greys went out to get the police. Birkenhair bundled Maggie into a tea chest and off to Dr. Knox's uh, dissecting room. By the time the police got to Burke's house, she was gone. She was in Dr. Knox's dissecting room. But not being completely stupid, the police went to Dr. Knox's dissecting room and found her, at which point they arrested Burke and Hare and their spouses. Hare turned king to King's evidence. Burke was hanged at 4 a.m. Uh, just outside St. Giles Cathedral. They thought it would be 4 a.m. and it wouldn't be, there wouldn't be a crowd. It was packed. Absolutely packed. Um, there, there are engravings uh, showing that. He was then publicly dissected by Monroe Tertius. And his skeleton still hangs in Edinburgh. And, uh, you know, those of us who been in Edinburgh remember Burke's skeleton sometimes hang, hanging in the lecture theatre even when we're having anatomy lectures. Um, Hare was vilified, subject to bullying, threats, and required a lot of police protection. He probably fled south to his sister in Dumfries. That's what happened. Knox's reputation was absolutely ruined. Clearly, he, could, he must have been complicit in all this. Uh, there's no possible way he couldn't have been. And there was a little rhyme that went around. Button Ben with Burke and Hare. Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief, and Knox the, boys who, the boy who buys the beef. And you can imagine that if that kind of rumour went round about your, your, your reputation would be pretty well shot, wouldn't it? There was an escalation of anatomy in the anatomy wars because Knox was out off the scene. Uh, he just retired into obscurity and, was di and died in 1862. Strangely, just buried. So, after uh, he was dissected, uh, Monroe flayed his skin off and made several pocketbooks, it said. Uh, this one's in dis on display in the College Museum in Edinburgh. That's Burke's death mask, which is also there. And that's my old mate. It says, Irish male, the skeleton of William Burke, the notorious murderer. Hanged at Edinburgh, 10th January, 18-something, 20. Can't be. Must be 1828. There you go. That's him. He's still there. So, we'll move on to the third thing. And this is much more recent and, and much more affects me as a, a, a 1982 graduate from Edinburgh University. Um, it's the story of Michael Woodruff, Professor Sir Michael Woodruff. Born in 1911 in London, son of uh, Harold and Margaret. His father uh, was uh, the chair of Materia Medica and then the chair of veterinary medicine at Sirencester. Was an authority on atrial fibrillation in horses. So subspecialization is not a recent thing. Um, he moved, they moved to Melbourne in 1913 when his father was appointed to the chair of veterinary science and uh, head of the veterinary institute in Melbourne. But they came back in 1914 when World War I broke out. 
Unfortunately, Michael's mother uh, died of staphylococcal, septis, staphylococcal septicemia after nursing him through a, a staphylococcal hepatitis media. In 1917, his father was called back for a promotion to Australia, and Michael and his brother followed. His father remarried in 1919. Uh, his father then came back to Europe to study in Paris for a year, and it was sailing back to Melbourne after that year that Michael became very interested in mathematics, probably fired by some, a chap called Archdeacon Williams, who was a fellow passenger on the, on the boat, and interested Michael in mathematical puzzles. Um, he left school and went to Melbourne University, initially studying maths and electrical engineering, but in his third year decided he would study medicine. Now, despite doing that, he managed to complete and get a first in his electrical engineering degree and uh, did very well in maths. It's not, I couldn't find out what, what kind of degree he got in his maths, but he, he graduated in both while still studying at medical school. And it was after medical school he decided on a surgical career. Outbreak of World War II, he was appointed to the 10th Australian General Hospital in the Malacca settlements in Singapore. In the early years of the war, led a fairly high life in, uh, in, in Singapore and Malaysia. Uh, but when the Japanese army invaded Singapore in 1942, he was taken prisoner in turn in Changi. Interestingly, in Changi, he continued to perform surgical operations, mainly uh, polygastrectomies and gastroenterostomies for peptic ulcer disease. Uh, astonishingly, a great many of these people survived and did very well. He also saw that many men were dying of deficiency diseases. And he thought he would do something about it. So, and what turns out to be a very characteristic um, way, he devised a machine for extracting uh, grass to get the riboflavin out of it. Now, this is, a, this is a lawnmower. And the basic tenet is that you stuff grass in here and grass pulp pours out here, being minced to bits with, by the lawnmower. They strained water through it and gave the extract to the soldiers, saving probably hundreds of lives with that. Um, he also um, extracted vitamin, well, he, a vitamin-rich extract from the husks of rice. They got polished rice, hence the vitamin deficiencies, but they also got the husks riddled with weevils. And uh, so he boiled the, the husks in battery acid from an old battery he found in the prison camp, neutralized it to kill the weevils and to extract the vitamins from the... the uh, the husks, neutralized it and fed it to the, the soldiers as well. Again, um, curing very many vitamin deficiency diseases. When he was, he made one attempt to escape, escape from Changi. They were wandering on the beach one day and found a boat and decided to escape on this boat. But unfortunately, the owner turned up and reclaimed it. So he had to stay in Changi until he was liberated in 1945. Decided on an academic career. Married Hazel. Um, became a lecturer in Sheffield and a senior lecturer in Aberdeen. He established anti-lymphocytic globulin as a, uh, as a drug for allograft rejection. His studies were all around tumor immunology and transplant immunology. On a visit to America, he was pointed towards um, cortisone by one of his colleagues in America. So again, characteristically, he went off to Merck and begged for some. It was so dilute, he had to bring back a very modest dose of um, cortisone in, in several large crates on the ship. 
But he was the first to uh, uh, use cortisone for allograft rejection. After a brief time, the chair of surgery in Otago, Dunedin, New Zealand, he was appointed to the chair of surgical science in Edinburgh in 1951, continued to work on his, his allograft and, and uh, cancer immunology, and in 1960 performed the first successful renal transplant in the UK. Now, in his autobiography, his diary records this as, got up, it was raining, had Weetabix, did the first successful transplant in the UK, <laughs> went to bed. You know, he glosses over it completely, just did the transplant, it was fine. You know. Uh, this is in front of the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh. Um, and there's one or, two, one or two other people. Professor Robertson, I recognise Professor Robertson. I can't remember what he did. Donald, do you? Professor Robertson? No? Don't remember him. Sister, Sister Darling, I think you may have known. And the whole bunch of the other cognoscenti of Edinburgh um, uh, sitting in front of uh, the infirmary. His first transplant was twin to twin and uh, identical twins, and the twin recipient lived for six years before dying of a heart attack at his um, post-mortem. He was found to have gastric cancer, which was then subsequently found in his twin. That's not what killed him. It was his, his MI. The second transplant died of infective complications of whole body irradiation, which was pretty well the only way you could immunosuppress someone those, those days. The third transplant was Bobby Kerr. He was father-to-son transplant and the first person to have medical immunosuppression after um, a renal transplant. The graft survived for 25 years after a rocky start. They thought after five years they should just stop it and see what happened. His kidney might be used to him by now. But he went into crashing rejection. His azathioprine was restarted and he did very well. When his graft packed up after 25 years, he had a cadaver transplant and was still alive in 1996. I did try to find out if he was still around, but I couldn't. Between 1960 and 1976, other transplants were performed, mainly by my old boss, Bernard Nolan. Uh, they all had medically induced immunosuppression, mainly with azathioprine um, and steroids, but 11 also had anti-lymphocytic globulin. This is at Holyrood when he was knighted. And this, these two guys had quite an effect on me. This is Bernard Nolan, who was my boss in Edinburgh. He was a senior surgeon in vascular surgery in Edinburgh. He, he carried out all these transplants, many of them anyway. And this is Sandy Jenkins, who was uh, Professor Woodruff's senior registrar and also my boss in Edinburgh. And they, it's because of them I ended up doing vascular surgery. This is Woody on his retirement. Um, and you can see all his uh, transplant patients look slightly chipmunky because of the steroids. That's Sandy, a very young-looking Sandy Jenkins with a characteristic smile on his face. Never had that when I worked for him. And uh, that's John Anderton, who was a renal physician at the Western General, who taught me medicine when I was a student. Uh, so, you know, we're still people I recognize. I actually met Woody. Um, I was a senior, senior registrar in Edinburgh, and the door flew back in its hinges, and Woody walked in. I'd never met the man before, but I recognized him. And he just said, where's my assistant? So I said, you, you must mean Mr. Jenkins, Professor Woodruff. And he said, uh, yes. And so I went and got Sandy at the theater, and... The reason he was, he was so worked up was that Hazel had bumped her head in the kitchen cabinet and had a cut in her head, and he wanted Sandy to stitch it up. So Sandy had to come out of theatre, and I had to take over the theatre. Sandy went down to casualty, stitched Hazel's head up, and all was well. And Woody went home happy. But I didn't meet him. Cantankerous old so-and-so, frankly. 
he retired, but in 1977, um, continued to write and write books, papers, peer-reviewed stuff, all very well-known and very apposite, still writing on his 80th birthday. He died in March 2001 in Edinburgh, and I think it's still missed. That's it. I have delivered, I think, sex and drugs in James Barry and the immunosuppressive drugs. If you can match up Burke and Hare and rock and roll, you've got a better imagination than I have. I'd like to thank Marianne Smith, who's the archivist at the Royal College, for all her help with raiding the cellars for all this information. And also uh, the boss, who put up with me during the writing of this. And also our two sons, Jamie and Alistair, who kept getting told about Burke and Hare, much to their disgust. It's been a, a privilege. Thank you very much. say thank you for what a fascinating talk. So informative. What a standard you've now set for the rest of the year. And we're looking forward to the rest oh, of your, your talks. I've learned an enormous amount about Edinburgh. I had absolutely no idea um, about, about, about um, surgeons that um, aren't quite all they seem. Um, so, um, so now I, I know a great deal more. Um, I'd just like to thank you very much again for a fascinating talk. And uh, wish you well in, uh, in the next year, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much, Bill. Don't have any questions. I'm going to have my glass of wine now.